I've started to adopt the mantra of what other people think of me is none of my business. And honestly, it's life-changing. It absolutely is. So the minute that you make a decision and then maybe that voice in your mind or maybe even somebody else says, oh no, but what will other people think? Oh no, but that's none of my business, you see. There hasn't necessarily been one person or one event that's been defining for me, but more a series of different people and different interactions that have been very formative to how I've developed. It was just a kind of osmosis effect that I think, looking back now, was very formative in, in helping me to realise that I could be that too. Hi, I'm your host, Chris Matthews, and you're listening to the Mentor Collective Podcast. Conversations that resonate, stories that inspire. In each episode, I'm joined by a guest. We explore their personal stories, the challenges and triumphs which have shaped them, and the invaluable lessons learned along the way. Join us as we navigate through four key themes, career journey and reflections, personal and holistic approach, leadership and values, and finally, mentorship, guiding and being guided. In each theme, we traverse the past, present, and future, unraveling the unique narratives of our guests. Welcome to the Mentor Collective Podcast. Well, thank you so much, Natalie, for joining me. In fact, I should be thanking you for letting me into your house. <laughs> thank you for having me. Could you just tell us a little bit about yourself and who you are? I'm Natalie Pereira. I'm the chief executive of a charity called the Education Policy Institute, which I co-founded around eight years ago. Before that, I'd been a civil servant for about 14 years, primarily working on education policy in Whitehall. Education has always been something that I felt very passionate about. So having that journey in my formative years, working in government on education really set me in good stead for what I'm doing now. Outside of work, I live in Croydon where I've lived for most of my life with my husband and 17-year-old son. And yeah, we live a fairly normal, quiet life in South London. Thank you. So as you know, the podcast is split into four themes. Um, so the first one is career journey and reflection. So let's get into that. So how did your career journey begin? Because it's not quite straightforward, right? No, it's not straightforward. And I think had you known me, you know, 15, 20 years ago, uh, neither you or I would have, and definitely I would never have expected that I would be CEO and running my own thing um, at the age of 42. Um, I had planned after A-levels to go to university to be a teacher. Um, I liked and still like spending time with children. I find them fascinating um, and, you know, and unpredictable and loving and adorable. Um, and I'd always felt that way for as long as I could remember. I wanted to be a mother for as long as I could remember. Um, so I had planned after my A-levels to go to university and become a primary school teacher. Two things happened. 
A, my mother died when I was 17, so I was coming towards the end of my first year of A-level. I rebelled a bit. I didn't know how to handle it. Um, and, you know, I acted out in the way that you might expect a quite traumatised 17-year-old to act out. Um, I bunked off lessons a lot. I, you know, didn't apply myself. And so I didn't get the grades that I was more than capable of getting at A-level. Although I could still have gone to university to do teaching. Um, but the second thing that happened was there was a bit more turbulence in my home life. Um, I was living with my dad and my stepmother and I had been living with them for some time. And that dynamic was quite difficult. They, my, my dad was basically going through a hard time and I decided that I would stay home, take a year out, stay home and be with him and help financially as well. And so I had been working um, for McDonald's part-time just to get myself through college. And so I carried on working there after I'd finished my A-levels. Um, and then uh, then I found a new job, an entry-level data inputting job, um, working for a car finance company. It was really tedious, but, you know, it paid a little bit more and it was a kind of nine to five. Um, but it definitely wasn't what I wanted to do long term, not even medium term, in fact. So then an opportunity came up for me to apply to join the civil service. I didn't really know what that was about, but I applied for it anyway. Again, it was an admin officer entry level role. And I got that. And that is how I ended up working in the Department for Education. And I think that was a really pivotal moment in my career. I ended up not going back to university as, you know, lots of young people, particularly from more disadvantaged backgrounds. They take a year out and then don't end up going back. And I was one of those. But going to work for the civil service at that point when I was 20 um, was very pivotal. And it then meant that, you know, 14 years later, um, I left the civil service and ended up co-founding this charity that I now run. Mm. Do you want to just tell us about what the charity is, what it does? Yeah. So um, I co-founded it with a former um, Liberal Democrat schools minister and former MP. And we'd worked together in government in a kind of minister and civil service, uh, civil servant relationship got on really well so after the 2015 election when there was an opportunity for me to go and work with him in setting up this new thing it was a no-brainer we both shared and still do share a very similar value in that our aim our mission is for all children and young people to, um, to achieve their potential, to have uh, brilliant outcomes, but most importantly, to close the gap in outcomes and opportunity 
between disadvantaged young people and their peers. So we set up EPI with the aim of um, producing rigorous data-driven research that identifies what is and isn't working in education policy and policy related to children and young people's mental health and well-being too, um, with a view to holding government to account and to encouraging government and the education sector to adopt policies and programmes that would help improve outcomes overall and to close the gap in disadvantage. Could you just explain what it means to be someone from a disadvantaged background? Yeah. Um, so the way that it's officially described or defined is if you are a child that has been on free school meals, um, if you're currently on free school meals or you've been on free school meals at any point in the last six years, um, you meet what is currently uh, the kind of government's that definition of being disadvantaged. And what that means is that you are in a family where your income is so low, um, either because uh, your, that's your work income or benefits income or combination of both sometimes, that you need extra support from the state. So a lot of the time we're talking about um, financially poor children, but that's not where disadvantage begins and ends. We know that there are lots of other forms of disadvantage and vulnerability. For example, if you're a looked after child in foster care um, or in a children's home, if you have special educational needs, you're also vulnerable. If you're with your family but on a child protection plan or under the care of a social worker, you're likely to be vulnerable. If you're a newly uh, migrant or refugee child, you're likely to be vulnerable or disadvantaged. So there's the kind of official government uh, definition of disadvantage, which tends to be used when you look at school performance tables, for example. Um, but there's also a much wider way of thinking about how children are vulnerable. And our aim is to capture both so that um, it, it sounds, um, uh, what's the word? It, it sounds like a cliche, but making sure that no child falls through the net, as it were. I think, I think we understand a lot more about the world and the kind of context that you operate now. So thank you for that. I guess bringing it back to you, moving from that kind of administrator role mm -hmm. at a you know, private company <clears throat> into government, um, which I guess even more so at the time had diversity issues and also you coming from a background, which is probably in stark comparison to a lot of the other people that were operating there. Do you feel that your upbringing presented you with any specific and unique challenges that the average person in that environment in government didn't have 
And how did you overcome those? Yeah, a hundred percent. So back then in 2002, and you know, I don't think a lot has changed dramatically now, you know, 21 years later, but certainly back then, um, the, the civil service wasn't very ethnically diverse, certainly at senior levels. Um, and it wasn't very socioeconomically diverse as well. So a lot of people that I had worked with had gone to Oxbridge. They had, when we think about the indicators of kind of affluence and middle class, so not only were they university educated, but they were often Oxbridge or Russell Group university educated. They came from parents who were university educated and professional themselves. Oftentimes their parents were still married. That's not the norm in the environments that I grew up in. In my school, it was more likely your parents were not together than, than still married. Um, so it was very difficult for me to connect with people. And I think they found it difficult to look past the fact that I looked differently, I spoke differently, I didn't have the same cultural or societal references that they did. Little things like I remember doing a, a, a school visit out of London with... Um, some people from both the Department for Education and Number 10. And they, on the way back on the train, they all started talking about the specific college in Cambridge that they had gone to. Now, in a kind of two-hour train journey or whatever it was back from maybe Doncaster or similar back to London... I was completely shut out from that conversation and I felt it. And not at, at no point did they stop and think, maybe we should talk about something else. We're not being inclusive here. And even though that conversation was probably about 17 years ago, or maybe a, a, a bit less than that, maybe about 15 years ago, um, it stays with me because it really stung at the time. Not only that I, were, I didn't have anything to contribute, but the fact that they let that conversation go on for two hours and didn't have uh, the decency really to think they should be more inclusive. There were little things like that. There were things like, um, you know, a lot of them had gone skiing. They'd go skiing during the season. And if you didn't know about that and you'd never been again, you were cut out of conversations and banter and things. But more substantively, I always felt that it was more difficult to get promoted and to prove that I could do the job just as well as my white middle-class peers. Um, so it took a long time, you know, but I never doubted my own ability or potential but I definitely felt I needed to work harder 
than many of my peers. Do you feel that, um, because we know that whether, you know, whether we like it or not, people who we like are generally preferred to go on and do other things. And if everyone in that environment or majority in that environment have a shared experience, then there's a lot more there to kind of build on top of in terms of the, in terms of those connections. And as you say, like that two hour conversation on the train, is that when we think then about what you learned from that experience, now you obviously do a job which is entirely about um, mitigating against that kind of thing happening and, and enabling people that otherwise wouldn't be enabled. I guess when you think about the way that you conduct yourself and, and the way that you, because presumably you have a, a team or you work with teams, whether they're you know, direct reports or, or partners and things like that, uh, do those have those experiences of, of being from a different background and being shut out and all of those things you experienced all the way through government. I'm sure we could spend a whole you know, few hours talking about those things. But has that informed the way that you operate now? And how do you try and avoid that happening? I think I'm more adept at dealing with those differences now for two reasons. First, you know, over a decade on, I have a lot more life experience than I did when I was in my early 20s. Um, and so I can contribute to conversations and I can talk about people and experiences and cultural reference points that I didn't have back then, but I do now, purely because of the way my life has evolved. So I I am able to engage more with those kinds of conversations, though, of course, not all of them. And the second thing is I'm more confident and I'm more empowered and I'm more comfortable in my own skin. So if people were having a conversation that I felt completely excluded by, I would find different ways of dealing with it rather than sitting there and getting upset um, though not visibly, but kind of getting off the train and then getting quite upset afterwards. I think I would either look to change the subject myself because I feel that I have the authority and calibre to do that, um, credibility rather, um, or um, I would just maybe even remove myself. So, you know, if you're standing at a networking thing, for example, and people drone on about their college and Oxford University or whatever, I think I'd just walk away. And I don't, you know, I don't see any harm or I'm, I'm not frightened to do that. Certainly one of the things that, that I see, and I am like 100% in the bracket, as you mentioned a bit earlier, of the kind of like the white middle class um, chap I'm sure I would do quite well maybe <laughs> in that environment I don't know yeah you'd be brilliant <laughs> <laughs> but the I think the what I see in in my industry and what I you know going about um, and connecting with different you know people are all up and down the chain of command in all these different companies is that that there are conversations that the, the C level has which the kind of D level or you know whatever you know, the, the people far below wouldn't have so yeah. there's a there's as well as there being splits in the kind of the cultural upbringing of people, um, which can be like race, education, um, socioeconomic background, things like yeah. that. 
there's also the kind of the current wealth level and that kind of the wealth barrier. Yeah. And there's been plenty of times I've been talking to, you know, CEOs and whoever who are like, oh yeah, when I'm out in my boat and then everyone's got a boat and everyone's talking about the boat. And I can, so I can in some way kind of relate to, to what you're saying. I wonder, you know, because part of this, part of this whole thing as well is to be about okay, what happened and how can it be changed or what, how can we take learnings from that so we can change what's either happening now or will happen in the future to avoid that kind of thing happening again. And there will always be cultural difference and there will always be something that, you know, a group of people have experience of that an individual or a few individuals don't. You've spoken about, and thank you, and it's so valid, ec extracting yourself from that conversation because yeah, you're, you're not, you don't owe that conversation to be a part of it. You don't owe those people to be a part of it. And your time is your time. So you do whatever you want with it. I guess looking at it from the other, the other way around, and not just in maybe in that one moment, but maybe more kind of like institutionally, what can, what can companies and people in leadership be doing that when they get on a train and they're with someone who maybe doesn't share all the same values, that it's not just a case of sat there thinking, oh, maybe I should change the conversation, that there's some sort of inbuilt inclusivity and not in a soft way, you know, not in a kind of wet way, mm. not that everyone needs to be included all the time. Mm. But what, what do you think? What do you think about that? So if we take a step back a bit, as a society, how do we avoid people who have perhaps more disadvantaged background or an alternative uh, route through to a career feeling isolated or feeling marginalised in their place of work and feeling like that genuinely hinders their progression or, you know, means that it ta progression takes longer. A lot of that we do, we have to do early on and that's part of why I set up EPI because giving all young people the same, you know, equality of opportunity um, is really key in unlocking that. So if you're a young person from a poorer family, a migrant family, say, or, you know, you've been looked after, you're in foster care, why, you know, and you have the potential, why shouldn't you go to Oxbridge or go to a Russell Group University or do an apprenticeship for, a, you know, a real gold standard firm like Rolls-Royce. Um, so we need to tackle a lot of it early on through the education system so we don't end up with um, with lots of these, the, these disparities by the time people enter the workplace. But as you say, it's inevitable that people will come together in a workplace and have different uh, experiences and different um, walks of life. And I think, look, I'm not saying, oh, when you're in the workplace, you must never talk about your time at Cambridge. That's not what I'm saying at all. But when it becomes systemic, and when it becomes institutionalised, that's when it can make life difficult and uncomfortable for the minority. And I think the way that you tackle that surely is through learning how to have conversations with 
a wide range of people. So if I get on the train with somebody I don't know that well, I don't think I'm going to bang on for two hours on, you know, growing up in Croydon, which you and I both know I could do. Um, but part of having a dialogue and a conversation is asking questions about the other person. Where did you grow up? What was your school like? How do you spend your free time? And, you know, what made you work in the sector that we work in? There, there's a whole array of questions that you can, and areas of conversation that, that you can talk about that doesn't have to be exclusive to any person. I don't think that that requires a training course. So a lot of the time, I, I employ quite a young workforce and it's quite hard sometimes to get them out of a mindset where they think a training course is going to address their development needs. A lot of the time, it's learning from other people. Um, it's learning how to have conversations through having productive two-way or more conversations. A lot of the time it's learning how to be resilient through seeing other resilient people. I don't think that there's always or even often a training course that can teach you these things. And that's why it's so important to have good role models and why I'm so pleased about your mentoring project because I think that is more, empower, uh, more powerful or impactful than going on a two or three day course. Yeah, there's, there's one thing um, when you're talking about that resilience and learning from other people, couldn't agree more. I remember one time I was in a, on a call and you obviously have heard the phrase, a customer's always right, right? There was this one time this, um, this customer, I was on a customer call, they were being really, really difficult. And the CEO of the company who employed me at the time was also on the call. And the customer was saying, like, oh, and they, they were giving bad feedback, basically, and um, as a negative feedback. And my then CEO went back to the client or went back to the customer and said, okay, can you give me some examples of when that type of behavior has been exhibited or where we've not done whatever it was. You know, the point was that he was asking for specifics mm. and the client couldn't provide any. So the CEO said to the customer, well, I can't accept your feedback if you can't tell me when this mm. thing happened. And that was, such a, that was such a big moment for me because it was like, because everyone has the right to ask for data points and everyone has the right to, to ask these yeah. kind of questions. And if we're gonna do something about something, then we need to, not be afraid to ask questions, you know, and in a similar way, what you're describing there makes me think about um, those people that you work with or the people that work for you. That kind of being present around someone like you or, or someone else who is feels even more enabled to be able to ask those questions and yeah. to, to push back and to recognize a situation. Actually, the situation is not correct. Like yeah. you sat on that train probably felt like there was a part of you that was wrong or didn't fit in some way. Yeah. Um, because there, the conversation, the people having the conversation, they were in the right. Like that was the aspiration that they had achieved. Yeah. And there's one thing that's just really pulling um, at everything I think that we've spoken about so far. 
in terms of the feeling of alienation and not alienating people. Yeah. Which is the pride of the person that is sort of starting that conversation. And what I liked about the questions that you were suggesting people can ask is that they're very open and they don't assume a place yeah. of rightness, you yeah. know? So everyone on that train, um, and we'll just keep on talking about it because it's a great example. Everyone on that train was really proud that they had achieved what they thought is what people should achieve. Yeah. It's like a pinnacle of achievement. Yeah, yeah. So let's talk about this because we're like, we'll pat ourselves on the back and be great about it, you know? Where I think, and I'd be interested in your reflection on this as well, this isn't supposed to be a monologue, but what I really like about what you're saying is that actually, as well as coming armed with and being mindful of having open questions, would you say that there is that part of the art of inclusivity is putting away your pride and putting away any kind of notion of what I know is right? Yeah, I think so. Um, I think the idea or notion of what do we mean by success or achievement? We really need to tackle and explore. Let's go back to that train. So you had three uh, mid middle class, if not higher, I don't know what the right term is, uh, women, white women who'd been to Cambridge on that train. Were these women? All women. Oh, was it really? I just pictured them as men. No, all women. Yeah. And I think that made it harder. Mm. Definitely. Um, it made it harder. So you had these three white middle class Cambridge educated women who absolutely, I'm sure, had worked hard and, you know, were doing well in their career and deserved to be where they were. And I, you know, I'm not questioning that at all. You're right that they would say that what they've achieved is seen as the epitome of success. They've got a good education, they'd gone to one of the best universities in the world, and they were now working at number 10. Um, fantastic. If I'm the fourth woman, I had come from a, a single mother household initially, then quite traumatic teenagehood I then lost my mother at age 17 and by that point on that train I was in my mid-20s if that I had a small baby I was a single mother and my marriage had broken down yet I was on that train and I was doing the exact same trip and field work that we were doing uh, together as a team and so there is an argument that my journey should have been or my achievement should have been seen as validly um, as their very traditional route so I think the point of that is that we need to broaden what we think how we define achievement and success. And I see it all the time in, uh, in work and in society generally, that if you go to university and you get this great job, you've achieved well, you've done the right thing. And yeah, that, that's true. But that's not the only way of achieving success. 
I wanted to come back to you on that point about um, the kind of the customer is always right mentality because I think one of the things that has been really enlightening for me in the past few years as I've developed as a leader but more than that as a person in my own right and outside of outside of being a CEO, I've started to adopt the mantra of what other people think of me is none of my business. And honestly, it's life-changing. It absolutely is. So the minute that you make a decision and then maybe that voice in your mind or maybe even somebody else says, oh no, but what will other people think? Oh no, but that's none of my business, you see. Um, it really has changed my outlook. And forgive me for spending so much time on, on your journey, but it is, there aren't that many people that I know that have had the journey that you've had, mm. but there are plenty of people out there that have, and there's mm. plenty of people that are having that journey right now. What the, the message that I'm really picking up from, from you is it's more of a kind of a message to leadership, really, and to, to people as they grow into leaders and one of the things we've spoken about so far on another podcast was actually about how setting a culture doesn't start at the top although mm. for sure you know, as a leader you demonstrate the culture you want to see but also it's so important all of those little actions that take place all the way throughout the company by people and individuals so the people that you're on the train with presumably were not leaders necessarily but they were mm. absolutely establishing the culture and, or, or perpetuating yeah. the culture, I suppose, is maybe more, more accurate. Maybe before we move on to the next theme, I wonder if you could share a story about a mentor who had a lasting impact on you, either your personal or, or professional life. I think there hasn't necessarily been one person or one event that's been defining for me, but more a series of very of different people and different interactions that have been very formative to how I've developed as a woman and as a leader. So when I think back to those early days working in the Department for Education, my first job there was working in a government minister's private office. And... She won't mind me mentioning her. So the minister at the time that I was working to, I was doing her diary, uh, was Margaret Hodge. She um, has had a sterling career in government, um, been, you know, a, a groundbreaking MP in her constituency of Barking and Dagenham. Um, and just, you know, had a very admirable career in, in politics generally. So I was working for her. I remember, I was in my early 20s at this point. And she was, you know, formidable and she knew what she wanted. She had great passion. I'm talking about her like she's dead. She's very much alive. Um, but, but just thinking back to those days. She also worked closely with other women who were her peers at the time. So often Harriet Harman... Tessa Jowell. These names might not mean anything to some of your listeners um, who are either younger or don't take an interest in politics. But these are other, these women were other 
women in government at the time. So we're talking the mid-2000s, right? Well, we're talking about 2002 onwards. And so all of a sudden, I'm in my early 20s, I've barely been out of, into London on my own. I'm working in London now. And I'm working for this amazing woman. And there were other amazing women coming in and out. Another uh, woman who worked in the civil service and was pivotal in establishing um, the government Sure Start programme, which has now, for all intents and purposes, been dismantled. But it was a really good programme for children aged 0 to 5. Again, spearheaded by a woman. And so suddenly, I think, there were these amazing women doing amazing things. And it wasn't a light bulb moment, but it was just a kind of osmosis effect that I think, looking back now, was very formative in, in helping me to realise that I could be that too. Um, so that, that's a very early example of women who, they didn't know it and they don't probably don't know it, um, but, but slowly changed my way of thinking um, about how you create impact in the world. The other person who has been just transformative to me is uh, my co-founder at EPI. So I was working, again, David Laws was a minister in the DFE and I was working to him when I was a civil servant, though in much later years from kind of 2012 onwards. Um, yeah, so we're talking about a decade or so after. And when I first started having meetings with him on issues related to school funding predominantly, he actually thought that I was a rocket scientist. Like he genuinely thought that I had a PhD in something very, very sophisticated and complicated. And he was shocked when he learned that I hadn't even been to university. And that never held back his faith in me. And I think that was crucial to him appointing me to what then became EPI. And we talked about, you know, looking past your traditional blinkered view of what makes success or achievement. And he did that with me. He never looked at my CV. He never looked at where I came from. Or if he did, it was only with kind of awe. Um, and he just had this fervent belief in my ability now and my potential. And so our working relationship now is brilliant. And, you know, it's evolving um, he will be chair of the board of trustees in a few weeks' time. And I'm so pleased that I can continue to work with him in some capacity because I think knowing that you have somebody who has your back, who believes in you, is invaluable. 
It's really, it's very moving because I can completely imagine, because I have been in different ways, alienated, completely alienated from a whole group of people. Yeah. And feeling like, I do not belong here. I do not fit in here. You know, and so I can, I can really relate to that emotion. And the fact that, that it comes for, for you, it came from a place of something that you couldn't change about yourself and it happened to yourself. There's like tragedy about that. But there's also an injustice about that, and mm. especially seeing where you've come now, like come to, there's even more of an injustice about that. And I, I don't get, and I, I want to move away from the trains. Um, I didn't get from what you were saying that they necessarily looked down on you mm, for no. that. It was just like a, a blind spot. And I think like it's the, the blind spots are the things which are concerning, right? Because the, the blind spots are where the more sinister stuff yes. can start to, to creep in yeah and for them it was a normal conversation for you it was something that has you know left a 17 year mark yeah, uh, yeah. on your in your mind but that's that's why it's emotional i think so thank you so much for giving so much to that part to that one theme <laughs> um let's move on to the next one so this, the second theme is personal and holistic approach Well, I think we've spoken in equal measure and maybe even more so about your personal circumstance um, and how that's influenced your profession and your career. I wonder if we can look at beyond what you've achieved professionally, what personal accomplishments are you proud of? My proudest accomplishment is not just being a mother because Lots of women can be mothers. Sadly, not all women who want to can be, of course. But watching my son grow and become... He's 17 now. He'll be going to university next year and become a really fine young man. Um, and he has seen tragedy and trauma too. Any young person growing up in COVID times is dealing with more than you or I have, you know, ever had to in our, um, in, in our childhood. But beyond that, he's had loss and, you know, and he has seen me very low at times too, though I've tried to protect him from that. But yeah, seeing him turn into the fine young man that he is and hopefully will continue to be as he enters into adulthood, that's my proudest achievement by far. Yeah, and it strikes me as, you know, they say a lot about, you know, a lot of the way that you bring up your child is, is based on how you were brought up and the sort of circumstance that you've find it or you found yourself in and uh, what I you know what what really amazes me after you know having because we've never spoken about this we've known each other for years and I, so I'm learning so much so many new things about you um but not even just new things but like the depth of things you know and then for you to have been able to clearly make a big impact in the career that you worked your way into you know against various odds and then but then to also have 
a son who's doing really well and is about to do even better is um, is an incredible thing. And I, I wonder if you know there's someone out there that's listening right now who 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 is struggling to see past the day to day. You know, there may be a young mother. Maybe they don't even have to be a mother necessarily, but maybe there's a lot of us are carrying a weight around with us that if we don't persevere and if we can't find resilience drags us back and stops us from moving forward. And some people might say, listening to your story, that having your son was potentially a dragging you back moment. You know, like you can't give as much to your career. You can't mm. give as much, can't do this, can't do that. Mm. Or your, you know, or the, the challenges that you faced coming in, the sort of cultural challenges that you faced coming into where you were mm. may have just been enough just for you to go, well, this is clearly not for me. Like I'm never mm. going to make any impact yeah. here. So what, like what about you, either like your, your character, like your upbringing your, or whatever, what about you has made you as resilient as you are? My mum and my dad, uh, I don't have a lot of memories of them being together because they separated when I was quite young. Um, but even apart, they both had this very fervent belief in me. And they weren't perfect parents by any means. They were both very flawed. We're all humanly, humanly flawed. So they weren't perfect parents individually. But what they did instill in me was that I could do anything I put my mind to. So even when things got tough, I, it could either go two ways. You know, when my marriage broke down when I was in my early 20s and it was just me and my baby son... I mean, I had support from my family, don't get me wrong, that was invaluable. But ultimately, it was just the two of us. I think that was some of my darkest moments. I barely had a penny to my name. I just had to dig deep. There's no silver bullet. Again, there's no training course that you, could go, you can go on. I just had to find that resilience and that strength somehow. And having a child for me, didn't hold me back. It catapulted me harder and faster to what I needed to do. I needed to provide for him. I needed to nurture him. I needed to be a good example for him. And if I didn't do any of that, I'd be letting him down. And I couldn't do that. I wouldn't do that. So he wasn't holding me back he was inspiring me to do everything that I needed to do there is a saying that comes in different forms and you know permutations of different words but the essence is if you're going through hell or whatever it is now take heart from the fact that you're going through it and you will come out at the other end and the principle of that has always given me hope. That and I have faith. So, you know, for me, religion has played an important part. I've never been a fervently practicing Catholic. Um, but having faith that God has a plan 
and that God doesn't give me anything that I can't deal with, and he wouldn't, has also given me strength. That won't apply to everybody because not everybody um, believes the same. But for me personally, the combination of my parents believing in me, having that motivation of my son driving me, and my own faith, I think is what, it is what has got me through. Yeah, what I really, really like about what you said was, um, and when I asked the question, I noticed that there was a, a change in your demeanor when I said about, like, maybe your son is holding you back. And I think there are people out there that they see a dependence or a, some sort of anchor point as something that they've got to keep returning to. It's not something that they can get past or get over. Mm. Or, you know, it's just, it's locked them to that moment, you know? And so when I, when I think about um, like having a child, for example, you can see that as a, I've got a child, I am the only one for this child, I need to stop doing myself mm. and do the child, you know? Mm. Um, whereas what I'm hearing from you, which is, which also shows your, the mindset that you have as well, right? Which is different, which is, I think your mindset is not, there's a problem, oh my God, there's a problem. Your mindset is more, you, it's like you don't even see the problem, you know? Like obviously you're aware of it, but you're already kind of pushing through, you know, like you're going through hell and people can sit there and just be like, oh, I'm, I'm in hell right now. Or they can just keep on going through it knowing that it will change. And I think with the, you know, what you were saying about how your son inspired you to, to do better and to be better for him and all that was just wonderful and wonderful to, to hear. And of course, why would it be any different? Like, why would someone have a child and then say, okay, well, I'm not going to do anything now because I need to look after the child. Mm. But I think what it demonstrated was your, <clears throat> your attitude to the situation. And I think that that is what people can bring to moments of challenge, you know, that like it does just because there is something that's happening, which is beyond your control mm. and is going to take more away from you. It doesn't mean you can't ex excel in other areas and you can continue to do great things. And that's, um, I'd, I'd find that really, really inspiring because you're not, you've also done it, you know, and, and here you are. I think it's also a downfall of mine too because I, I find it hard to relate and to empathise with people who struggle and who have low resilience because my default is you power through, mm, you know. Yeah. You dig deep and you power through and it will be okay. Um, and if it's not okay, you'll deal with it. And that's worked for me, but it doesn't work for everybody. And one of the things that, one of the many ways in which I'm flawed is that I think I don't have enough patience or empathy for, like you described, people who might say, oh, I've got a child, so I can't do this. Um, or, you know, or I can't do that. Or I've got a problem and I can't deal with it. 
everyone reacts to adversity in different ways. And one of the things I'm learning is that I need to have more patience and empathy for people who don't respond in the way that I would tend to myself. So resilience is a really key theme, I think, mm. um, through your life by the sounds of things, mm. you know, and part of it has been enforced and unavoidable, you know, like you either are resilient or you fail. And it sounds like you had a bit of failure where maybe you weren't, you hadn't worked out how to be resilient, resilient and constructive, you know, but you were resilient and destructive, like yeah. in your earlier years, you know. So it sounds like you've really reached a point where you're resilient, resilient and constructive. So like you're, when you're in adversity, you still find a way to make the best of it or that's your, that's your goal. I wonder, how do you think you stay motivated in challenging times beyond just it is who you are? My family mean the world to me, and predominantly my husband and my son. So being, you know, I'm so lucky that, you know, I have a home and I have a family that love me and who I do anything for. And you can take so much comfort in knowing, in having that, that security and that secure attachment, which I think is really important. Now that I have that, in a way that I don't think I had in my childhood and my early adulthood, um, but now that I have that, I feel very empowered I feel like I could do anything. And then the other thing is that I truly believe that individuals can have an impact on the world in small ways and in big ways. And I think a lot about, about legacy, and I don't mean that in a kind of egotistical way. I mean it in the sense of, you know, when we leave this earth, what impact or imprint will we have made? Some of that might be through our children, but what else? And I know that when I leave this world, hopefully later rather than sooner, I want to have done as much as I can for good. And I think that's inspired a lot of my work. It inspires some of my, well, all of my voluntary work too. So I've just started a project in Croydon trying to tackle youth crime. We were all, the whole community was rocked and devastated by the stabbing of a 15-year-old girl in September. And I think there's a lot more that we can do as individuals to make change than we, than we realise that we're capable of. Thank you. Let's move on to the third theme now. That is leadership and values. I think we, we've spoken a lot about how your, you found yourself in environments where you were completely alien. And now you have your own company, right? This charity. Um, and there's been a hell of a lot of upward trajectory in that career journey. How do you think 
your leadership style has evolved through the course of your career journey? It's a great question. I think as a leader, I'm learning more about give and take. So I feel more confident now, eight years on, I feel more confident about being able to be firmer about things, be more steely, perhaps. Whereas when I was younger and less experienced, it's easier to say, oh, yes, let me try and adapt to this or fix this or, you know, do that, even when it wasn't in the best interest of the organisation or individuals. I think I know I've got a better understanding now of when and when not to make accommodations, I think is what I'm getting at. It's really important to me as a leader to recognise talent in, in my staff, you know, again, no matter what their background or their role is. And I'm very lucky that we attract and employ incredibly talented and motivated people and nurturing that talent and giving people opportunity to progress is incredibly important. With what you know now as a leader, if you were to transport yourself back to, to those times when you were you know, noticing a lack of inclusivity and all this kind of stuff, do you think you would have been able to have affected that culture and, and how, would you have, how would you have done that? And I think really this kind of question speaks more to maybe people entering organizations or, or cultures mm. that have a have an inclusivity problem uh, and when I say a problem as in it's it's impacting people personally and, and professionally and therefore productivity do you feel that you could go back to that kind of organization and and put changes in and how would you go about that I think with a big institution like the civil service it's very difficult to change things systematically and we have to be realistic about that um but i think there's more that i could have that I, I would do if i was transported back to that time knowing what i know now and having the confidence that i have now so i think more speaking truth to power so going back to my seniors and saying can we encourage people to have more inclusive conversations with each other? Can we give pointers as to what that look, looks and feels like? I was on the um, department's, I can't remember what exactly it was called, but it was the Black and Minority Ethnic Advisory Group. And it was a farce, actually, when I look back on it. So I co-chaired it at one point, and it was... Uh, staff from different uh, minority ethnic backgrounds coming together in this kind of voluntary group to, I don't really know what the purpose of it was, um, but a lot of people then who were more uh, grades that were more junior than I was would say to me, you know, and they were from black or Asian, or South Asian backgrounds predominantly, um, would say to me, oh, but um, how, do you, how did you get promoted? And the only answer I had for them was work harder 
and take jobs that would put you visibly in the line of sight of senior leaders, directors, ministers. There was no easy way to do it. And that's probably true for everybody, but more so, I felt, for non-white members of staff. So I think if I could go back, I would be clearer with the institution that it's not a me problem, it's a you problem. I think the last question on the theme I'll ask is um, that you have an idea of you know, if you went back in time, what would you do? And now you work with, by the sounds of things, a, a diverse group of staff, which I presume is necessary for the type of work that you do. As I guess, is that, would that be a fair thing to say? No, it's not as diverse as oh, okay. we'd like it to be. Um, so it's still predominantly white and uh, predominantly people who've been to university and gone through a very traditional route. But, you know, we're working hard to change that. And, and, you know, the nature of the work we do means that more often uh, incoming staff will need to have kind of university or equivalent and, uh, level of um, qualifications in maths or statistics, economics. Right. And mm. that is also self-selecting. Right, right, right. So... It's, it's difficult. Um, we're definitely more diverse, both ethnically and in terms of socioeconomic uh, background than we have been in the past. But, but yeah, we've got work to do. We're by no means perfect. And what was interesting was when the um, Black Lives Matter uh, campaign was kind of at its peak, uh, late in 2020, a lot of organisations and charities in particular were putting out a statement, a Black Lives Matter statement. And one member of staff asked me if we would do that. And at the time, I think I was the only non-white member of staff. And I just and I said to her, "Of course, we believe in you know the principle." of Black Lives Matter and the objectives that they are trying to uh, achieve. But it would look very hypocritical if we were demanding inclusivity and equality elsewhere when you could take one look at our website and think we're not walking the walk and we need to work on our own organisation before we can demand differently from others and that's what we're doing and i like how you know in response to my assumption that you're unapologetic and i think that that's like a, a lot of people who are critics of the diversity arguments in corporations and stuff like that i think that they there's a sort of there is an assumption there that everything has to start from an apology you know, or like, a, like, I have done wrong and we're in a terrible place kind of thing. What I like about your, the way that you see it, at least, or at least maybe the way that I've heard it, is that you can accept that there is work to do mm. without groveling and, you know, and, mm. and being seen to be kind of like, oh my God, this, is, this has got to be like the, the top priority. 
thing. And I think a lot of people, not a lot of people, but I think some people, when they kind of shy away from this side of of the discussions and like a political discussions or or econ or social discussions, whatever you want to call it, because there is this sort of perception that they're the first thing to do is apologize all the time. But what I really like about how you just addressed it is actually, it's not an apology, let's just get it done. Yeah, no, you're right. And I, I, was, I was just reflecting a bit on the, uh, the idea of being apologetic for things. And my starting point is that we're all human. If I had done something wrong, if I'd made a terrible mistake, I would always be the first to apologise. I've got no, uh, no pride in, in that sense. Um, but there's nothing to be ashamed of if you're on a journey and you're not there, you're not at the end of your journey or you're not where you want to be yet, but you're working towards it. What is there to apologise for? I think that, you know, and I always have a very, very crystal clear idea of, um, you know, if I want to achieve something, I'm focused on that and not focused on necessarily apologising to lots of people and placating other people. So we spoke about how, what you saw in the past and how, what you would change and how you might go about it. In where you are currently, how do you foster a culture of collaboration and openness and fairness? Again, it's difficult. And I don't think that uh, we're fully there yet. And, you know, I lead a small, fairly young organisation. We are also on, um, on, a, on a journey how do you foster collaboration? It's something that we've been grappling with because um, despite being a small organisation, people do tend to work in silos um, and they want to work more collaboratively. But you can't necessarily force that and there can't be a kind of top-down diktat to, you must now go and talk to so-and-so or, you know, and we've tried a lot of the, um, the things you might think as pretty standard. So, uh, you know, and they work to some degree. So having, you know, team lunches and cross-organisation lunches and things like that. And they help, but uh, they, they don't completely solve the problem of working in silos. I think a lot, going back to what we talked about at the beginning, is leading by example, taking time to talk to your peers and your colleagues and showing that it's okay to spend time doing that, to go out, you know, and grab a coffee. Again, is more valuable than going on a training course and learning how to collaborate. I just don't think there's a recipe that maybe I'm wrong I don't tend to operate a very hierarchical model I don't think um, so although there are grade structures I think staff and I would hope staff feel comfortable or as comfortable coming to me as they would their line manager or even one of their peers potentially I think it 
it's tricky and it's definitely something that I don't think any organisation gets perfectly right. I think a lot of it's listening to staff, actually. We've just adopted a new uh, programme um, which enables kind of real-time staff feedback. And honestly, we've only had it a few weeks and it's game-changing the insights it's given us and what we can learn. So I'm quite excited about that. Thank you. Well, let's move on to the final theme now, and that is mentorship, guiding and being guided. So you've shared a few quotes and, and thoughts uh, through the course of the podcast. You're going through hell, but you're going through it, mm. um, being one that really sticks out. Is there anything else that you, like, are there any other quotes or pieces of wisdom that stand out to you as something that kind of either you learnt and it will stand out then or runs through what you do? Yeah. I read a lot. So I'm full of quotes and <laughs> <laughs> cliches. Um, but one that has stuck through with me from when I was a teenager, I, I definitely like have attributed this in some way to my mum. So it could be to her book or it could be something she said. But it, it, it's this, it's be brave. And when, you're, when you don't feel brave, just act brave because nobody can tell the difference. And you know me, Chris, and I don't know if you've ever known me to, I mean, if I see a spider, I'll probably scream and <laughs> be quite, act very, very scared. Um, and, but in the important situations, I don't think you've ever seen me not, be bold and brave but I certainly have never felt like that or I've never I've not always felt bold and brave um that might I suppose go be at odds with some of the advice that we might give young people which is that it's okay to be scared and it's okay to show vulnerability. And I don't disagree with that, but when I think about all the times I've been put outside my comfort zone, I think consciously or subconsciously, I've always adopted a mantra of be brave, be tough, or just act it and you'll be fine. And so far, it's worked. We've spoken a lot about um, indirect mentorship, I mm. think. You know, this uh, the idea that um, actually it's about how people behave and you observing that mm. or being a part of that, mm. which has had a significant influence in how you operate. Um, have there been any times in your career or outside of your career where you've had a very sort of explicitly mentored moment? As I said, there's been lots of, particularly lots of women, although, you know, a smattering of men in my career and personal life who I think have been pivotal, motivating, transformative. There are two things that stand out for me when I think about uh, 
some highlights, right? So the first is a professional one. Somebody I worked with who was very, very senior and went on and has gone on to be even more senior and high profile. Um, and I absolutely looked up to her, right? Brilliant, brainy, beautiful, managing a family, you know, um, and just a really nice person. And she was the kind of woman you're like, how do you hold, how do you do this? You're amazing. And one day she had birthday drinks and she got really drunk and she was sat outside the bar on the floor, smoking a cigarette, legs akimbo, and her husband had uh, joined us for the drinks and he was sort of crouched down and they were having this moment where I don't really know what she was saying, but he was saying to her, you know, you're brilliant and, you know, don't worry about anything. And I just saw, suddenly saw that glimpse into her being very human. And so I know it's not that I didn't put her on a pedestal anymore, but in a way I admired her even more because I saw that she was just at her core human and vulnerable like the rest of us. And I think that really shaped how I th think you can be both a great leader but a very authentic leader at the same time. And the second thing, and this is where I go back to kind of my cheesy analogies, is my godmother, so in a personal capacity. And as you know, I lost my mum when I was quite young. And I've leaned on my godmother a lot, particularly recently. And she said to me a few years ago, and I, I'm not going to do this justice because I always forget how it goes. But it, it's something like the strongest roots withstand the heaviest storm. And essentially what that means is if you know who you are, if your roots are planted firmly, if your values are planted firmly, no matter what storms try and rock you and sway you and break you, you will withhold it. But if your values and your ethics are shallow, you'll waver and you'll break, you'll fall. And so that's what I try and hold on to, just thinking about authenticity. So back when you were young and you had started your career, were you as aware of how much the stereotype of you was hindering your career and your advancement compared with today? Mm, that's a great question. No, I don't think I was. I think I was quite naive. And I, were, I had lived in this bubble, right, where in... South London, if most pe in Croydon, most people were like me. Uh, well, certainly the, you know, the people that I went to school with and hung out with, um, people in my family, of course, they were like me. So I wasn't different. And it was only when I went into this big professional world that I gradually started to realise that I wasn't like the people around me, but it, it didn't, it wasn't a light bulb moment. Um, I was quite naive about it. 
And I think I did spend a lot, a number of years thinking, oh, why am I being overlooked for promotion? And I don't think it was that people looked at me and said, oh, you're not white or you're middle class, so I'm not promoting you. Of course, it's not as simple as that. I, did, I, I think that it took me a long time to realise that what was holding me back was probably that, well, was to some degree, the inherent bias that some people had. I don't like calling it unconscious bias, by the way. I really hate that term. I just think that's an excuse for saying, oh, we've got a bias or, you know, a racism or a, pre a prejudice, but it's unconscious, so we don't mean it. That's okay, because we don't mean it. I just don't think that's acceptable. Do you think it's an acceptable way of saying something which is maybe a bit more sinister? I think it's, an accept it's deemed as an acceptable way of saying what is ultimately an unacceptable behaviour. It's unacceptable to have a view of somebody based on their race, religion, background, sex. Um, that is unacceptable. But calling it unconscious bias has become a way of making it acceptable. Like it relieves accountability. In Absolutely. And... I'm not tolerating that. I don't tolerate it. I don't allow that term in my organisation. We've had a long journey today. Uh, I feel like I've walked a million miles and I don't know how you feel. How do you feel after having gone through all that? It was like a normal day. Has anything kind of really struck <laughs> you? I feel hungry. <laughs> like it's time for us to get lunch. Yes. But... Um, <laughs> Um, I don't think I'm an anomaly. I think there are lots of people out there who have had much, much more challenging circumstances than I've had. Um, as I said, although uh, my parents were separate, I had two loving parents, not for nearly as long as I wanted or needed them both of them, but I was lucky in that respect. I was lucky that even though I was a single mum, I had the support of my family, particularly my dad, in helping me with uh, raising my child. Um, and I'm lucky now, I'm privileged now that I have my son, my husband, and we talked about, you know, having roots, and they are my roots and my strength. I worry a bit that I don't want to come across as a kind of X-factor type sob story, because I've had so many great moments and privileges, I think. I think there are lots of women, people out there who have equally or more challenging stories, but maybe not the platform that I've been fortunate to have. And when you um, think back through all the experiences that, that we've spoken about today, <clears throat> has reflecting on them now given you any kind of new insights into them? Yeah. Yeah, I think 
The most insightful one was when you asked me where I got my resilience from. And I don't think that I had really um, computed that a lot of it did come from my mum and dad. I think I've always looked back and thought, you know, um, oh, they divorced young and it was all, you know, difficult and, um, you know, even though they loved me, it was all quite hard. But actually, they have, again, separately, um, they, they have instilled in me a belief that I can, I, can, I can be anything I want and I can tackle adversity. I don't think I quite appreciated that before. So thank you so much for your time today. Um, the final question is, what do you hope that people that have listened to us talk today take away from this conversation? I hope that they take away from this the importance of resilience and the understanding that even though things might be tough at a given moment in your life, that you can overcome that. And I hope that they take away some courage and confidence that I wish I had earlier on in my career in speaking truth to power and challenging the status quo because we all need to be doing that. And as I say, I wish I had done that earlier on. Thank you for joining us on this episode of the Mentor Collective podcast. If you enjoyed it, you're welcome to subscribe. You're also welcome to go to our website, thementorcollective.net, to find out about the other good work we do in mentorship. Wherever you are, I hope you have a great rest of your day.